Laudator Jesus Christus. Praise be Jesus Christ. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Council of Faith as we continue our examination of the post-conciliar documents. Today we're going to look at the instruction on the worship of the Eucharistic mystery, Eucharisticum Mysterium. This was issued in 1967. And this deals with, of course, the Most Blessed Sacrament. In the very opening paragraph, we're told, the mystery of the Eucharist is the true center of the sacred liturgy and indeed of the whole Christian life. In the Constitution on the Liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium, the Council recalls certain facts about the nature and importance of the Eucharist. It established principles for the reform of the rites of the sacrifice of the Mass, so as to encourage the full and active participation of the faithful in the celebration of this mystery. Again, we see those familiar phrases, full and active participation. This we will see time and time again, full, active, and of course also conscious participation. In the Constitution on the Church, the Council showed the close and necessary connection between the Eucharist and the mystery of the Church. The two are intimately connected. It's no accident that St. Paul refers to the Church as the body of Christ. Pope Pius XII wrote an encyclical letter, Mystici Corporis. The mystical body of Christ, the Church, is intimately connected to the sacramental body of Christ, the Blessed Sacrament, the Eucharist. It's the same Christ. One is in a sacramental form, his body, blood, soul, and divinity, really, truly, and substantially present in the Holy Eucharist, and his mystical body, all the baptized faithful gathered together under the one head, our Holy Father, Pope John Paul, the Vicar of Christ. And so the Church and the Eucharist are inseparable. Because of that, we see a reference again to Pius XII. It says, Pope Pius had prepared the way for many of these statements of the Council, especially in his encyclical letter, Mediator Dei. That was a particular letter in reference to the sacred liturgy. While Paul, Pope Paul VI, in the encyclical Mysterium Fidei, recalled the importance of certain aspects of Eucharistic doctrine, of the real presence, it's amazing that in our so-called post-conciliar church, many shy from using such terminology as real presence. Yet, Vatican II did not change, alter, or detract in any way, shape, or form the teaching of Lateran IV, which talks and defines transubstantiation, or on uh, the Council of Trent, which talks about the real presence, real, true, and substantial presence of Christ in the Eucharist. The important guidelines and rubrics and doctrines that are contained in this particular post-conciliar post document refer directly to the consistent teaching of the Church, going all the way back to the Gospels, the Epistles, and of course the other ecumenical councils prior to Vatican II. We're told the Mass, the Lord's Supper, is at the same time and inseparably one a sacrifice in which the sacrifice of the cross is perpetuated. Two, a memorial of the death and the resurrection of the Lord, who said, do this in memory of me. Three, a sacred banquet in which through communion, the body and blood of the Lord, the people of God share in the benefits of the Paschal sacrifice. Threefold, sacrifice, memorial, the death and resurrection of the Lord, and number three, 
a sacred banquet. So we have those three dimensions of the Eucharist. But notice, sacrifice is mentioned first. Without a sacrifice, there is no sacrament. That is why the priest, when he's celebrating Mass, must consecrate first the bread. He elevates the host, genuflex. Then he consecrates the uh, cup of wine into the precious blood, elevates it, and genuflex. A separate consecration, bread and wine. When you separate body and blood, you have death. That is how the sacrifice of Christ is represented sacramentally on the altar. After the death, the sacrifice, we have the sacrament. That is why, as a memorial acclamation, we profess, we proclaim, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. And so we have now the blessed sacrament is present. But before it could be made present, there must be the sacrifice. But it's also a sacred banquet. We're going to eat that bread and drink the wine, the consecrated wine. We're going to eat the bread of life. And so those elements which are used are not just used and then put away. They are not just symbols. They are the real thing. Real food, real drink, Jesus says. He who eats my body, drinks my blood, will have real food and real drink so that we can have real life, have it to the full. And because of this, the sacred banquet aspect is also an important component of the Eucharist. One of the problems in the post-conciliar church has been some uh, catechists, some so-called liturgical experts have focused exclusively on the um, aspect of the sacred meal. Not even sacred. It's become so pedestrian uh, that it's ridiculous. They'll use common things. They'll use glassware that you would use at a picnic. They'll use uh, napkins instead of purificators. They'll treat the sacred food of angels, the panis angelicus, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, food for the soul. However, it's consumed by the body because you and I are both body and soul. We are matter and spirit. So sacrifice, sacrament, sacred meal, those three components. We're also told in this post-considered document, the celebration of the Eucharist, which takes place at the Mass, is the action not only of Christ, but also of the Church. So this is Jesus offering Himself to God the Father, but it's also the Church going to feed her own. A mother feeds her children. Holy Mother Church feeds us by giving us the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. St. Thomas Aquinas, in the 13th century, when he was uh, developing the sentences of Peter Lombard in discussing and theologizing on the seven sacraments was discussing how logical it was that we have seven sacraments because we have seven uh, phases of our human life. We are born in the natural order. We're born, reborn supernaturally in baptism by water and the Spirit. We are fed naturally. Our mothers feed us and we are fed by our spiritual mother, the Church, through Holy Communion. And so the Church is going to feed us through this awesome, august sacrament, but also she's going to direct us to true and fitting worship. We're further told, no Mass, indeed no liturgical action, is purely private, rather celebration of the Church as a society. Every single Mass is a public act of the Church. So even one priest celebrating a Mass by himself is not doing a private action. He represents the whole church. The whole church is with him at that very moment. The communion of saints cannot be separated. 
the saints in heaven, the souls in purgatory, the church militant on earth are always a part of the Mass. That's why we have the prayers of the faithful. We pray for Pope John Paul. We pray for the local bishop. We pray for the departed. We pray for each other, the sick, the poor, because everybody is present at every Mass. The celebration of the Eucharist is the sacrifice of the Mass, the origin and consummation of the worship shown to the Eucharist outside the Mass. Not only are the sacred species which, which remain after the Mass derived from the Mass, but they are preserved so that those of the faithful who cannot come to Mass may be united to Christ, and His sacrifice celebrated in the Mass through sacramental communion received with the right dispositions. The Blessed Sacrament, the Eucharist, first of all, is there to feed the soul. It is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, really, truly, and substantially present. And it's there to feed the soul. We consume the appearances of bread and wine while we actually partake of the substance of Jesus Christ. And so the primary means of the Eucharist is to feed our souls, to render sacrifice to the Father. You can't separate those two. Feeding of the soul and giving honor to the God the Father. Recall in the Old Testament when God the Father said to Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son, your only son, as a sign of love and fidelity to me. It was a precursor to what Jesus would do. Obviously, Abraham was stopped before he could sacrifice his son Isaac because that sacrifice would not have had supernatural effect. It would have only been of symbolic value. So the angel stopped him before he killed his son Isaac. However, God the Son actually really and truly gave up his life, was sacrificed as of love for the, to the Father, for the Father, so that you and I could be saved from our sins, so that we could be redeemed, we could be saved. And so that supreme sacrifice is intimately connected to the same thing that will feed us, that will give us nourishment, that will give us strength. We're also told, there should be no doubt in anyone's mind that all the faithful ought to show to this most holy sacrament the worship which is due to the true God, as has always been the custom of the church. Nor is it to be adored any less because it was instituted by Christ to be eaten. For even in the reserved sacrament, he is to be adored because he is substantially present there through that conversion of bread and wine, which, as the Council of Trent tells us, is most aptly named transubstantiation. Notice what the Council is telling us, notice what the post-conciliar documents are telling us, the same thing that has been said all along. The same thing from Lateran Four. the same thing from Trent. The same worship we give to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we give to the Eucharist. Remember the first commandment, I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt not have strange gods before me. To adore anything or anyone else but God is idolatry. Every time the Israelites committed idolatry, they were punished in the Old Testament. It was a grave offense against God. So idolatry is something God does not take very lightly. So when you and I worship, adore the Eucharist, we can only do that if it is God. Not because it represents or symbolizes. It has to be God because the commandment commands us only to worship and adore God. We call this in Latin latria. It's a word which means worship. We can only give worship to God. We can't give it to the Blessed Mother. We can't give it to the saints. We can't give it to the Pope. 
Can't even give it to your dearly, dear um, mom or grandmom. You can only give Latria to God. We can honor the saints. We call that Dulia. And we give the highest honor, Hyperdulia, to the Virgin Mary. But God and God alone, we give worship, Latria. And that same worship we give to the Eucharist. The word transubstantiation, it's a word that we learn growing up, not just preparing for our first communion. It's a word that was officially embraced by the church as part of her doctrines at Lateran IV. It was explicitly uh, explained at the Council of Trent, and it appears again in Vatican II. So when people say, well, that's an archaic old saying, it's old, it's steeped in history, but it's valid, it's true, and it's used. It's used in the conciliar documents, the post-conciliar documents. You'll find the same word in the catechism of the Catholic Church. Transubstantiation. Trans-movement, substantiation of substance. A changing of substance. The substance of bread and wine is changed into the substance. The essence of God. That's why when you receive communion, you are actually receiving God. The triune God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You're receiving the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ in the substance. The outward appearance, however, remains bread and wine so that you and I can consume it. If it looked like flesh and blood, who could eat it? If it looked like something that was oozing, if it looked like something that was just chopped off, no one could, we would be repugnated by it. However, it looks like bread, it tastes like bread, we can eat it. But substantially, what you cannot see, that's still present there, the essence, the substance of God. This way we can fulfill what Jesus says, you must eat my body, you must drink my blood to have life within you. We're further told, the mystery of the Eucharist should therefore be considered in all its fullness, not only in celebration of the Mass, but also in devotion to the sacred species which remain after Mass and are reserved to the extent the grace of the sacrifice. Now it's true. The practice of reserving the Blessed Sacrament did not happen immediately in the Church. Initially, Mass was celebrated, Eucharist was offered as a sacrifice to the Father, a means of adoration, a means of worship, also to feed spiritually the souls of the faithful who are there when they receive communion, they would save leftover consecrated hosts to bring to the sick and dying. We call that viaticum, okay? Something you took with you spiritually on the journey home to heaven, God willing. And so the reservation of the sacrament first started as a means to, to bring communion to the sick. However, almost simultaneously, not happening exactly at the same time, but soon afterwards, the faithful were going to church. They realized that the Eucharist was there because the priest would take that host and visit the sick. And they thought to themselves, well, if he's not there yet, Jesus is here in the church, I'll go and pay a visit. And that practice started to grow in such a way that they intentionally kept not only hosts for the sick, but they would keep hosts there so that people would come and worship at a door. So the tabernacle then became a focal point. Outside of Mass, people would come to church, visit the tabernacle they would go and make a, a visit to Jesus. They would look at the little red candle that was burning, symbolic that our Lord was present in the Eucharist. When you're told by somebody that uh, reservation of the Blessed Sacrament developed in the Middle Ages, they're wrong. 
Okay? It happened in the ancient church. It wasn't exactly simultaneous with the institution of the Last Supper and the sacrament as Jesus started, but it flowed from it. It flowed from the people's desire and need to give worship to God. And so we see this gradually becoming more and more prevalent. So by the Middle Ages, it was everywhere. Every church not only had a tabernacle for the sick, but had a tabernacle where people could come and worship God. That's why they became more elaborate. They started to look like the Ark of the Covenant. They had angels. They had saints. They became very uh, beautiful, ornate, because of who it was that lived inside our Lord Jesus Christ. Going now to paragraph 6 of this document. The mystery of the Eucharist is the center of the entire life of the church. The catechesis of the Eucharistic ministry should aim to help the faithful realize that the celebration of the Eucharist is the true center of the whole Christian life, both for the universal church and for the local congregation of the church. Catechesis is very important. We need to remember that we need to know more. You can never know enough about God. You can never know too much truth. So the more you and I read the sacred scriptures, the more we will know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. The more we read the catechism, the more we read these documents and the post-conciliar documents, the more we will know about God and these awesome mysteries. This document reminds us of the different ways that Jesus is present in paragraph 9. This goes directly back to Sacrosanctum Concilium, particularly paragraph 7, the different modes of Christ's presence. He is always present in a body of the faithful gathered in His name. He's present too in His Word, for it is He who speaks when the Scriptures are read in the church. In the sacrifice of the Eucharist, He is present both in person and in the minister. And above all, under the species of the Eucharist. Now we call when we we're looking at the original Vatican II documents. When we looked at Sacrosanctum Concilium, we looked at that particular phrase that they used in referring to the way Jesus was present. And one of the things that's developed in recent times that is most disturbing is that some people have put that all on equal playing ground. This is not what the council document says. Jesus is always present where two or more are gathered in my name. That's right from the scripture. He's always present in the sacred word. When the scriptures are read, yes. He's always present in the person of the priest because we are configured to Christ. We act in persona Christi, in the person of Christ. We act as an alter Christus, as another Christ. That is all true. Whenever any sacrament is celebrated, Christ is present, yes. But Jesus is present in the Blessed Sacrament, in the Eucharist, Sacrosanctum Concilium, the Constitution of the Sacred Liturgy tells us but especially, and remember we looked at the Latin word that was used, it used the word maxime, which means in the fullest, total sense, Jesus is present in the Eucharist. So to say that Jesus is as present in the tabernacle as he is in the congregation is erroneous. Yes, he's present where two or more are gathered. Two people are praying, Jesus is there. You read the Bible, he's present, speaking to you through the scriptures, through the gospel, but he is maxime, most especially in the fullest sense, in the Eucharist, because there it is his body, blood, soul, and divinity. Really, truly, substantially present, right from Council Trent. So Vatican II tells us that 
He is most especially present in the Eucharist. In this post-considered document, we're told the very same thing. This presence of Christ under the species is called real, not in an exclusive sense, as if the other kinds of presence were not real, but because it is a real par excellence. And there's a footnote there quoting Pope Paul VI in his encyclical letter, Mysterium Fidei. So again, we're saying that in the highest, fullest sense, Jesus is present in the Eucharist. But he's also present in other forms, okay? Not as full, not as vibrant, okay? In the same way, you could say God is everywhere by his divine providence. But God is especially present, obviously, in the believer, someone who has been baptized, configured to Christ, as the indwelling of the Holy Trinity. He's most especially present in his own house, the house of God, when we go to a house of worship, in a very real, true, and substantial way, however, he is present in the Eucharist. We're told in paragraph 12, It is indeed the priest alone who, acting in the person of Christ, as we say in the Latin, in persona Christi, who consecrates the bread and wine. But the role of the faithful in the Eucharist is to recall the passion, the resurrection, and glorification of the Lord, to give thanks to God, to offer the Immaculate Victim, not only through the hands of the priest, but also together with Him. And finally, by receiving the body of the Lord, to perfect that communion with God, among themselves, which should be the product of participation in the sacrifice of the Mass. For the faithful achieve a more perfect participation in the Mass when, with proper dispositions, they receive the body of the Lord sacramentally in the Mass itself in obedience to His words, quote, take and eat. Notice it says here, it is the priest alone who, acting in the person of Christ, consecrates the bread and wine. This is a post-conciliar document after Vatican II. Those who tell us it is not the priest who brings about the real presence not only are they wrong, but they're not in harmony with the church. They are not what we call orthodox, right teaching. It is heterodoxy. Other false teaching to say it is the congregation that brings about the presence of Christ. The congregation does not effect the, the transubstantiation. The congregation does not change the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. The priest does that because he has been ordained. He's been given the sacramental character and a double marksman made on his soul. He's configured to Christ. He has that power. Now, he doesn't do it for himself. He does it for the church, for the people, for the forgiveness of sins, for the adoration of God, so that we can be spiritually fed and so the sick can be solaced by receiving viaticum. But it is the priest who affects, or what we say confects, the most blessed sacrament. And the people achieve this perfect participation when they have that proper disposition in the state of grace. And when you receive Jesus worthily, your heart and soul are now filled with God. Imagine that. God who is so infinite and vast is now going to reside within you. That's awesome. To imagine that someone who is infinite is now going to take up residence in my soul because I received Jesus his body, blood, soul, and divinity. The document goes on to tell us, in paragraph 17, in liturgical celebrations, the community should not be disrupted or distracted from its common purpose. This is why the disruption of the congregation is to be assiduously avoided. No distractions. What's more distracting than when other things are going on? 
when they're showing film strips on the wall, when there's balloons and all kinds of things running around in the church. Our focus should be on God. We're there to worship God, to participate in the unbloody reenactment of Calvary. We are there to give thanksgiving. We are there to make petition. We are there to seek uh, forgiveness of our sins. We're not there to be amused or entertained. We're not even there to socialize. Yes, we're a family of faith. Yes, we worship together, but we're not there to see how your neighbor's doing. That's done elsewhere. But we're there for a specific purpose, to worship God. Now, we're told in paragraph 21, in printing the words of consecration, the custom of printing them in a different way from the rest of the text should be maintained, or they may stand out. How many times... You, when you read something in the regular text, it just blends in with it. When you, something's in bold, it stands out. You read the New Sacramentaries now, the words of Jesus, this is my body, this is my blood, the whole institution narrative on the night he was betrayed, when it gets to the actual consecration, take this, all of you, and eat it, this is my body. The words are to be big so that the priest knows now's the time. Now is of special importance, emphasis. We're also reminded in this document about in the, in the adaptation of using um, different things in renovating the churches. Uh, we're told in paragraph 24, don't destroy treasures of sacred art. No iconoclasm. In the ancient church, there was this heresy of iconoclasm that destroyed pictures, images, because they believed that it was some kind of idolatry. And the church condemned that idea. Well, we have a modern type of iconoclasm where anything that was in existence before Vatican II was to be smashed, destroyed, or sent off to the missions. The council never asked for that. It asked that we respect the integrity of what came before while using what we have available now. We're reminded, as this document concludes, that the essence of the liturgy is to worship God, and again, it is the supreme authority of the Church which alone governs how the Mass is celebrated under what conditions things can be changed, if they can be changed, and what is the real purpose of us gathering together. The worship of God, to give thanksgiving, to participate in that sacrifice, to feed our souls. I invite you to please read these documents whenever you get a chance and see exactly what the church is saying. Don't believe what someone just tells you. See for yourself. They're written plainly in language that you and I can understand. Thank you for your very kind attention. Please tune in again for another episode. May God bless you and Mary keep you.